Good morning. It's been uh, good being with you in the past five weeks. Um, I am looking forward to having my Sunday mornings back. Um, even this morning as I was leaving the house, my kids were watching uh, Power Rangers and the other one on the Xbox as uh, the other one, older ones, were making breakfast and I thought, oh, it'd be good to be a part of this. So, and all that means is uh, Russ is going to be here sooner. That's, that's all that means. And so, uh, as you wait for Russ's return, I trust that Joel and the elders and other leaders in the church will continue their good work uh, in leading this congregation and blessing you. So, you're in good hands. And uh, I'll continue to pray for you this summer and uh, pray for us at downtown as we uh, uh, go without a pastor also. Earlier this week, I uh, met with a pastor friend, and uh, in our conversation, I told him I preached on Psalm 61 last week, and that I'm preaching on Psalm 40 this week, and he looked at me and asked, should I be concerned? Uh, is there something going on in your life that I need to know about? Because these are two very depressing Psalms back to back, and uh, I told him, no, it just sort of happened this way. But I see Psalm 40 being part two, if you will, to the conversation that we had last week on Psalm 61. We talked about crying out to the Lord last week and what it means to be confident in our faithful God. And today we will talk about uh, waiting on him. Because after you cry out to the Lord, you begin the hard work of waiting. And sometimes that is harder than anything else, because as we will see, waiting on the Lord does not come naturally, and it certainly is not easy. So join me as we pray before diving in. Father, we come and we bow our hearts before you. In your wisdom, you orchestrate all things for our good, and we know that every moment you are doing more than 10,000 things to bring about glory to yourself and to form the ultimate good of Christ in us. And sometimes that involves the hard work of waiting. And for some of us, that's the world we live in. We wait in anticipation of your return, holding on to the promise that you will be everything you promise to be, certainly in the age to come. And I pray for those of us gathered this morning as we turn our hearts to you now, that you would speak to us and give us hope, renew our life and strength in your promise. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Eight years ago, around this time of the year, when I was in St. Louis, I received a phone call from my younger brother. And usually this means only one thing, NBA trade rumors, and how the Wizards need to fire their general manager. So I picked up the phone in the usual manner, and I said, sup, man, what's going on? Did we get rid of the guy yet? <clears throat> to my surprise, there was a long pause. And then the sound of my brother weeping. And I could barely make out the words, Dan is dead. Dan was a gifted musician. He was on a world tour with Regina Spector, 
when he died. And he wasn't just a good musician, he was a great friend. We served in the youth group praise team together where he had to tolerate us. And I remember spending countless summer days talking about soccer, his favorite sports, and playing basketball, his least favorite sports, and watching goofy movies from Blockbuster. The news left me shocked and numb. He left behind his wife and a very young daughter at the time. And I went from denial to question, back to denial, wondering if this is a bad dream. It felt like someone punched me in the gut. This is what it means to be in the pit, a miry bog. And although there are significant historical and cultural differences between David and us, we all know what it's like to be in the pit, to feel hopeless, to be in despair. It's when the person you're in a relationship with says, this is not going to work. It's not you, it's me. It's when the boss pulls you into our office and says, the company is downsizing and we're laying you off. So when the doctor calls and says the test came back positive and it's stage four cancer. And when non-Christians hear Christians talk about this very topic, invariably it raises the larger theological question, how can a good God author evil? They argue, since evil exists, God is either all-powerful or good, but he certainly cannot be both. But the Bible from the very beginning and to the end presents God to be both powerful and good. The world that he has created and the world he will recreate when he returns. And the price he paid to ensure that on the cross and the empty tomb guaranteeing everything Christ promised to be proves that God is indeed powerful and good. See, the Bible is clear. God is all-powerful, and he cares deeply about us, yet evil exists. We live often in the pit, and this can only mean one thing. He must have a compelling reason for allowing evil and suffering in this world. And we know that reason. We know why God allows evil and suffering to shape us into the moral likeness of Christ. But knowing the purpose behind our suffering doesn't necessarily mitigate the embodied experience, does it? When we find ourselves swallowed up in pain, Psalm 40 exhorts us, instead of reaching for all of these other things, to wait on the Lord and his deliverance. But it is hard. You've been there. I've been there. And the temptation to trust in others to deliver us, to turn to substance to numb our pain, to distract ourselves, to avoid reality, or to resolve to work harder so I prevent something like this from happening next time is real. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with leaning into community or even distracting ourselves from the pain and the suffering we find ourselves in. But there is a clear difference between trusting in the Lord, turning to Him, and waiting on His timing versus turning to people and things. You know it in your heart. And waiting is hard. And I stink at waiting. Our society makes it worse, doesn't it? We're all allergic to waiting, it seems like. If waiting is so hard, why does God make us wait? We know what he's trying to do, but why? Why does he make us wait? When you hear this, people, God makes us wait because he accomplishes his purpose in our waiting. In fact, waiting is a part of God's work of grace in us. He makes us wait because, not because he's got to figure all this out and it takes him time to, to massage the truth into our hearts, to form and shape our hearts. Though he could do that, by the power of his word, just as he created something out of nothing, he can cr create Christ-likeness in us by the power is, of his word. But he makes us wait because it's, it's a key ingredient to what God is doing. And in our waiting, we begin to see ourselves and we begin to see God and we begin to his, see, see his truth in ways that we would otherwise not. And there are no shortcuts and the Bible is replete with examples of men and women who waited on the Lord. So let's talk about this. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? What does it mean? First, it means to surrender. To surrender. Waiting, among many things, slows us down. Whether we're standing in a line at DMV, or sitting at a table waiting for a server in a crowded restaurant, waiting forces us to slow down. We don't have a whole lot of choice. And when we slow down, we become more aware. One time I decided um, to walk to DuPont Circle from where I live. And it's a short drive, and I thought, why not walk this? It's a beautiful day. It took me about 40 minutes, and I've never done it since. But in this one time I walked to DuPont Circle Metro Station, I discovered so many things on Massachusetts Avenue, like the famous red phone booth outside of the British Embassy. Did you, did you know it's there? Right, all of you are like, of course. Well, if you're driving to work like you're in NASCAR, you, you don't see these things. <laughs> For the same reason God slows us down, and he reveals to us our inner life. You see, the default setting of our heart, as we have sung earlier in the service, is to go astray. We hold on to the idols and their lies. David refers to them as such in verse 4 when he says, Blessed is a man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. 
You see, because we are not always aware of our wandering heart, God draws our attention to what's really going on beneath the surface. Why? Because the goal of following Jesus is not to amass more information, but it is transformation. The goal of following Jesus is to become like him, not simply to know more about him. Eugene Peterson, a pastor and author, says a disciple is a learner, but not in the academic setting of a schoolroom, rather at the work site of a craftsman. It's a calling to come, to be with him, and to learn of his ways. Isn't that what Jesus said when he first called his disciples? Come, come, be with me. Learn of me, and I will make you fishers of men. Before we go out and do things for the Lord, the calling is clear. Come, sit, learn, listen, grow, and be transformed. And all of us in Washington, I think we need to hear this all the more because we live in a city that prizes information. And it's easy to think Christianity is ultimately about proper theology. If we know our theology, then we are in good standing before God, that we are somehow spiritual, that we have arrived. Now, theology is important. We need it. But the goal is not information, but transformation, so that ultimately we can love God and others well. We know this because the greatest commandment tells us such. In exposing the truth about our inner life, God desires then true repentance. Confession is owning up to our moral failings, our sins, and that's when God promises forgiveness. Praise God for that. Praise God that He does not wait until there's genuine turnaround in our life, repentance, before He forgives. Otherwise, I'm not sure if I would be forgiven of any of my sins. He forgives us as we confess, but he desires true repentance where we not only own up to our moral failings, but then we turn from that and we walk in his truth, his way. You see, if we don't pay attention to the deeper inner reality of our own heart and continue to persist in the default mode of turning to the idols and latching on to their lies... We miss out on God's blessing for us. The glory of Christ's likeness formed in me and in you, in our community. And that is why God brings us to a place of waiting again and again and again. Becoming like Christ, I hope, is more than religious platitude to you because it really is our highest calling. There's no greater glory, no greater beauty, and there's no greater need in our city, in this world, than the church to be the body of Christ. And in order for that to happen, it takes time. And that's why we must wait, and we must wait without losing heart. Because God doesn't always show up when you want him to, right? David says in verse 1, I waited 
patiently for the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord as God in his time works out his good plan for us. Someone once said, there are vital and even priceless things we will only learn about God, ourselves, and others, and the evil one through God's time-consuming, arduous, incremental, repetitive, trial-error correction process of learning. It is the classroom where God invites us to come, sit, and stay a while. And as we slow down, and we become aware of our hearts and repent of the idols in us and the inclination to hold on to their lives, we realize that His will, His plan, and His time are better than ours. And that's when we begin to learn to submit. And the fruit of surrender is rest. The only way you can truly find rest for your weary soul is when you learn to let go of all the things that the world shouts and screams at us and you begin to hold on to the truth and the promise of God. We can rest in the confident assurance that regardless of the details or difficulties we face in life, God knows us. He cares for us deeply and is actively involved in, in our life. This is a mystery, and we don't often see it, but it is true. Job was in the pit for a very long time. And for many chapters in the book of Job, he asked, why and how? Why am I suffering? How could God do this to me? But surprisingly, in the end, God does not give an answer to any of his questions. Rather, he invites Job to rest in God's wisdom, power, and compassion for him. So when Job asked, why God, how God, God does not respond with, well, because, rather, he responds with, I'm here, like I've always been, rest in me. You see, if you are a follower of Christ, this is true for you, even though you find yourself in the pit and there are no signs of God showing up anytime soon. He knows what is going on. And even in your waiting, he is working out his good plan for you. And that means you and I, we never settle for second best. Our life is not somehow God's oversight. God didn't forget about us. God never has oops Oh no, I totally forgot about that person moment. But he is purposeful and intentional in crafting our lives, our hearts, the way he has always wanted to. Can you imagine if you and I really believed this and we lived out of this truth, how different we would be that's what God invites us to. So next time God slows you down, 
see it as a blessing, and pray for a posture of surrender because God is working. He's working for your good. Second, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means to obey. It means to obey. For David, the pit is not some distant memory as we read in Psalm 40. Read even the last verse, verse 17, where he says, As for me, I am poor and needy. Here is a king, a man with all the power, all the resource, all the influence, all the wealth at his disposal. And he says, I am poor and needy, but, for the, uh, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Something has happened and he finds himself in a very difficult situation where he would describe himself as poor and needy. He's in the pit. And David cries out to the Lord and he waits again as he has done before. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for wait can be translated in several different ways, one of which is to hope, to expect, and to look eagerly. So when David says he waits patiently on the Lord, he is not simply wishing that something good would happen. Rather, he speaks to the certainty of God's deliverance. And that's what he says in verse 5, doesn't he? You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward me. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are more than can be told. He has delivered me again and again and again, more times than can be told. And David, in light of all the past faithfulness of God, he sees his present situation and he is confident that God will show up. And that's why he looks with certainty. Certainty. He is not discouraged. It's not a wishful thought like, I hope he shows up. Maybe today is the day. No, he knows God will show up. And that very hope moves him to present obedience. You see, waiting on the Lord is not waiting in the doctor's office. If you're anything like me, all of a sudden these old gardening magazines become really interesting, don't they? You're like, oh my gosh, that's what I need to do. No wonder I can't grow a thing. No, waiting on the Lord is purposeful and you anticipate because God will do it. And in the meantime, that hope moves you to faithful obedience. It moves you to act in light of the reality that awaits you. My girls, yes, I do have more kids than just Daniel. I know he makes all the highlights, but I have three other kids. Uh, my two older girls, they go to Camp Ligonier every summer, and this is the highlight. More than Christmas, more than Thanksgiving, more than end of the school year, this is their highlight. I know it because they start talking about it starting January. Five months out, they start talking about all the things they're going to do once they get to this camp. And it's 
easy to see why. Whenever I asked how was the camp, they would list all the cool things. I'm like, where do I get to sign up for this camp? Because I want to be a part of this. So this year, when they came back from their camp and I asked, girls, what did you do this year? They're like, oh, we went jet skiing on the lake, swimming in the pool, riding on a horse, and then we got a ton of candy. I'm like, sign me up. And because of the camp that awaits them, they know that come mid-June that they're going to pack up and go to Camp Ligonier. They start packing like weeks in advance. They even do their own laundry. This is a miracle. Like, I know God exists. They start washing their clothes and start folding them and packing them neatly as if like, I mean, this is the greatest thing in the world. And I think this is exactly what David refers to in verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. What does he mean? He means that God opened his ear to hear and to obey the voice of the Lord even in the pit. And he would go even further in verse 8 to say, I delight. He's in the pit. He's in, the, he's in the middle of this. And he says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Why? And how can David even say something like this? Because of his hope. Friends, do you know that regardless of where you are, what sort of pit you are in. Do you know that God is already working and he will come one day to deliver you? It's not a wishful thought. It's absolutely certain he will. And if you believe in his promise, your heart can change. Instead of questions of why, how, and bitterness growing deep in your heart, you can delight in his word and move in obedience, walk in obedience. And that's what we see David do. We see that David is confident that he who delivered him in the past will do, us, do it again. And church... You and I have more reasons to be confident than David ever was. You see, David looked back and he saw moments where God was faithful to him, where God delivered him, rescued him, protected him, and restored him. But when you and I, we look back, we see God coming, taking on flesh, laying aside glory, to become a servant where he would live his life perfectly obeying the will of God and eventually would go to the cross and will become our substitute that he would become sin for us and that he would receive the full wrath of God David couldn't have imagined that his God the glorious king who would come to deliver him 
with power, with majesty, would become the servant who himself would end up in the pit, pit of death for three days, but rise again. You see, Jesus, he cried out to the Lord too, and he waited. He waited patiently through the agony on Monday, Thursday, as he wrestled with God, and his tears and sweat became like blood. He waited patiently through false trial, false accusations. The very people whom he came to love, as they said, crucify him. He waited patiently, even as they mocked him on the cross and said, well, you did all these great things and you can't even get yourself down from the cross. He waited patiently, even after he cried, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He went all the way to the very depths of hell. And he rose again so that you and I, when we find ourselves in the pit, we can be confident that he hears us. You see, it's no longer about how good is my prayer, how sincere is my cry, how desperate is my situation. No, it is about how good this God is. And when we look to the cross, we can be certain that he hears us. The moment we cry out to the Lord, and even before a word is on our tongue, he knows. And he, keep, he comes running. And he presses his ear right to our lips. And he hears. He sympathizes. And he aches with us in every pit we find ourselves in. And as much as he wants so badly to deliver us from that pit, to comfort us in his arms, as any parent here would want to do with their kid, he knows that in order for us to be like him, we need those moments. And so as hard as it is for him to wait, and you thought it was hard for you to wait, as hard as it is for him to wait, he bears with us in our pit, and he knows exactly when to pull us out. And he embraces us, he embraces us with his kindness and showers us with his grace. And he gives us joy to look forward to the day when our waiting will be no more, when we will no longer walk by faith, but we will walk by sight. And that's what he invites us to. And so in the meantime, we wait, but we do so with great hope. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you are so good to us. You are indeed a good, good father. You are so patient with us. And you persevere with us. You are in the pit, right there, holding our hands. You're listening to every word. You know our every tear. And you know just how heavy our hearts can get sometimes. 
None of this surprises. Because you've been there. But you know it's best for us. Thank you for your kindness. Even in those moments. Because you know that we need it. So we praise you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.